Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. Now, usually this is a collection of brilliant guests from this week's radio show. But I'm actually on holiday this week, so it's a collection of some brilliant guests that you haven't heard from from past week's radio shows. Does that make sense? Anyway, we'll be talking to Masin Zaidi about his new memoir, all about growing up gay in a Muslim family and how he came out. We'll learn how to make some money from Sarah Akutimbi. And wannabe Paralympian Mary Wilson will be telling us how she is keeping positive despite lockdown. First up, it's Masin Zaidi. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. We are talking to the author of a book that has just gone absolutely crazy in the last few weeks. You've probably seen it everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. A Dutiful Boy is a beautiful memoir. It takes us on a journey um, from a devout Muslim community and one boy's journey from an economically deprived area of East London to the bright lights of Oxford University. Musin Zaidi wrote the book about his coming of age and coming out story and everyone everywhere is talking about it because it is so beautiful. He joins us now. Hi, Musin. Hi, Harriet. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you for taking the time out to talk to us. Um, so I actually, just before I started speaking to you, I was talking to our last caller about uh, university life and how different it's going to be for the kids going to university this year. But for mm. you, it was already a completely different world from the one you grew up in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so I uh, grew up in uh, in Walthamstow in East London, which I think is considered by some as quite trendy now, but at the time it definitely <laughs> wasn't. Um, and I ended up being the first person from my school to, to go to, to Oxford. And I, I actually don't think that's about me. I think that's about uh, our class system. But anyway, I ended up going to going to Oxford and um, it was a completely different world. Like I remember having a conversation with people about when our student loan was coming in and they said that they didn't have a student loan. And I, and I, I actually said out loud, wait, so your parents just have thousands of pounds in a bank account that they can just give you. And they and they was like they said yes and then in the same conversation they we ended up talking about Eton and Harrow and I'd never heard of them and they couldn't believe I'd never heard of them and I couldn't believe that they'd never if that they would expect to have <laughs> me to have heard of their schools and then when I said have you heard of Walthamstow Secondary School and they said no I thought that I'd proven my point um, <laughs> and it took me a long time to realise that um, what was going on so yeah university yeah. for me was an education in a lot more than just the law. Um, and I actually, I actually think there's something serious that's lost 
when universities go online um mm-hmm. and I've, I've written something about it uh, but yeah i so i i think it's really interesting that you'd be talking about that we can definitely talk about it because i i think you make a, a an excellent point there that a, <clears throat> one of the big issues i guess with our university system as it stands at the moment is the class bias within it um mm. but i also wanted to talk to you about going to university as a gay muslim boy and having this space yeah. to be entirely yourself what was that like um well to to be completely honest the first year of university was the loneliest year of my life um it was um i felt so isolated because i'd gone from this strong faith and community and family full of love um, and support to being to, to living away from the first time and I felt like I couldn't get close to anybody because I had harbored this really shameful secret. Mm. Um, so for the first year, it was really hard. And then in some ways it got easier, but it also got harder because I, I finally in the second year managed to tell the first person that I was gay. And But then I proceeded to have what I can only describe as a really serious uh, breakdown, a, a mental health breakdown, because I really couldn't. You know, I'd worked so hard to keep these parts of myself suppressed and suddenly they had erupted and I didn't know how to control it. Um, And so the second year was really hard. Um, But I also learned a lot from being at university and I found the most wonderful, loving people who became my chosen family and who rallied behind me and supported me. And so the book is, you know, in equal parts about struggle, but it's also about finding wonderful people along this journey that we call life that just take you into their arms and and hold you while you need to be held when your parents either can't or won't. I had a moment of such identification when you were talking there because I, my first year of university, I remember thinking that was the loneliest time of my life as well. Until sort of just Mm. probably about six weeks before the end of it when I found that group of people and thought, oh, okay, this is okay, it's going to be okay. Um, But I think we don't talk about that, but that experience must be so familiar to so many people because we are uprooting them from a world they know and dropping them back down in another one where particularly if you are coming from uh as you are a muslim background from a poorer part of london and you're being dropped down in oxford university surrounded by the entire of eton and harrow it's a complete disconnect how did you start to cope with that well, I actually think, um, obviously, I talk from a particular perspective, although mm. I think that even, you know, even those people coming from Eton Harrow, even though yeah. 90 of their fellow students in a year end up going, I think that they, they must also have their own, you know, struggles because it's a very different and formative and uh, kind of adult making experience. And so for me, I think it would be wonderful if every university student could su- receive the support that I received. And to answer your question, I... Um, so there were, there were nights where I wasn't sleeping or the only way I was sleeping was with sleeping tablets and it was getting increasingly worse. And so I ended up being referred to the university counselling service. Um, and that is where I really learned to um, talk in a, in a coherent way and a kind of, a, a kind of a dispassionate way about what was going on. Um, and I, I guess that, that was me taking the first steps to acknowledging how much had been hard and thinking about ways of, of dealing with it. And mm-hmm. I kind of wish that every university student, you know, regardless of their background, was mm-hmm. given that opportunity when they when they first start. One of the things that we do know is that um, 
kids from uh, lower income families who make it to Oxford and Cambridge have a higher mm. dropout rate because yeah. they feel alienated or like this is not their people and not their world. What do you think the university could and should be doing to change that? Well, I mean, I, I'm not very uh, close to university policy at the moment. I know that, for example, Oxford is doing uh, an access year, which is a year, I guess, I guess to try and climatise students who would otherwise not be used to that environment. Um, it's to try and get them used to it. Um, yeah. And I, I guess there are advantages and disadvantages to that, but it seems like that the university is taking a step in the right direction. Mm. Um, I think ultimately what we need to see, and this is not just on a university basis, this is on a societal basis, we need to see the numbers reflected, yeah. the numbers of applicants, undergraduates um, from state schools being reflected in the numbers going to Oxford, because that, that is a fair representation of society. Now, that isn't that you can't just blame mm-hmm. Oxford or Cambridge or the Russell Group for that. But ultimately, the only way to, to solve it is by coming, making our society fairer so that when a person like me goes to that university, they don't feel so out of place because it, it feels like another part of our society rather than some upper echelon um, that's reserved for a privileged few. So you found a way to fit in. You made friends, you created a family and a life for yourself at Oxford and mm. then university finished and you had to go home. Mm. How, yeah. how was that? Well, it, it's the most disjointed I've ever felt. I think, mm. um, you know, fortunately, I've never had to suffer from any sort of split personality or anything like that. So I don't know what it's like, but I guess that it was an experience of feeling like I was having to be two different people. So at home, when I was with my family, I was trying to be the, you know, I I say it's called a dutiful boy for a reason. So I was trying to be the dutiful son. And then I would go out, but I was really intent on on living my life. So I would go out and uh, go on holidays with my gay friends and and come back late at night. And, you know, sometimes I'd walk in and my parents would be getting up for prayer. And it felt so... I felt so disrespectful, but at the same time, I just, I needed to carve out a space for myself and I wanted to leave, but because of the, because of our culture, it felt like a really um, problematic thing to do. And so I ended up going home. And so for a long time, I felt like a divided human being. And actually that lasted for 12 years. Um, even once I moved out, it, wow. it was, it was this kind of, yeah, like there was partly, you know, me being, me being the the lawyer and uh, um, you know and the gay guy, and then there was me being the the son, um, and then one, once I met my now fiance, that that kind of those that divide became almost untenable because I was having to keep um, these two worlds apart when they were there was so much love in them both, but it didn't seem to want to mix. So um, so it wasn't easy. Did you manage to bring them together? I did, um, I, you know, and that's one of the main reasons that I wrote the book because, you know, I think so much of the time when we we hear stories about the immigrant narrative and second generation immigrants, yeah. we're hearing about breaking away. And for me, I wanted the opposite. I didn't want to break away from my parents because I love my parents and they love me. And so the reason for writing the book was because it was a journey to acceptance. And so it took about 12 to 15 years. And I mean... The prologue is the moment where I take my fiance to meet them, and it ends with it, it ends with describing that meeting. Um, but to kind of fast forward a bit, mm. um, now they genuinely love him more than they love me, and that's absolutely <laughs> fine by me. Um, 
because I just it just means I'm marrying the right person. But it took it took a lot of work and uh, love and effort on all our parts, but we got there. There's one um, beautiful part of the book where you describe the fact that it's you've come back from university, your mother knows you're gay, but your father doesn't. And actually your mother knowing about it, rather than this being this kind of shared thing that you have together, it's sort of almost driving more of a wedge between the two of you. And there's this sort of incredible sadness and honesty about that, which is that sometimes we can show people who we really are and it's too much for them to be able to manage in that moment, that they need more time Mm. to deal with it. How did you manage that? And how did... How did you manage it also with your father? Well, you know, I, I, I think that what we um, often forget is that um, when something significant happens in, to a family member, it happens mm. to all of us. And if we love the person, okay, predominantly it happens to that person, but it's also happening to the rest of us. And luckily for me, because I had got to the point where I was com- comfortable and confident in who I was, when I shared my then you know, secret with my mum, she fell apart. And I knew that the best thing I could do was not fall apart with her, was to just stand there and, and remain there while she gathered her strength and gathered herself. And because that's what I had to do. You know, we, her and I were raised in the same culture with the same values. Yeah. So if I found it hard, of course she was going to find it hard. Um, and so for me, it was about patience. And, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm no saint. Sometimes that patience wore really thin. Um, and there were definitely moments, and I write about this, where I just thought, you know, sod this, I'm just going to walk away. Um, but I, you know, I had to stay. Um, and then with my dad, um, you know, we told him a couple of years after telling my mum, and I remember we were sat down, and I was totally petrified. They'd been at the mosque, and they were driving home, and they walked in, and my mum just started screaming because she knew what was coming, and she was so mm. upset, and my dad was confused. So I sat him down and eventually managed to find the words and he also burst into tears. But then he kind of, you know, composed himself and said, I love you. You're my son. And I had my bags packed upstairs. And when he found that out, he said, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. And that was a wonderful Mm. reaction. But then a week later, he'd invited a witch doctor to the house Mm. to cure me. And again, that was a really complex thing to go through. But I had to remember that even that, it was, it was, albeit misguided, it was an act of love because he yeah. thought he was trying to save me from, from something. Um, and so there was a lot of complexity to navigate. But, you know, ultimately, I think I was really fortunate because I was raised with so much love. And so in some ways, they gifted me something that I could mm-hmm. then use to keep us together. Mason, it's the most beautiful story and the way you write it is incredible. I just wonder, just finally... For any other young boys maybe listening to this who are going through something similar, what what would be the one thing you want them to know? Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's, it, I, I, there's so much. But if I was going to have to, I, if I was going to pick one thing, I mean, the, the, the book is in part dedicated to young people struggling with their identity. And it ends, the dedication ends with you are not alone. Mm-hmm. And so if there was one thing, right now that the person whoever is listening is you know sitting in their room and thinking how am i going to deal with this the one thing i'd want them to know is you are not alone find help because there are people there that are willing and able and will shower you with love um and then and there's plenty more but if yeah to answer your question that's the one thing you are not alone 
Moosin, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Um, Moosin Sayidi there, author of A Dutiful Boy, which is out now and is a really beautiful read. I thoroughly recommend it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. You might have heard of The Secret. It was a bestseller because it claimed that just by thinking about what you wanted, you could make it appear. Uh, I was never entirely convinced by it, but our next guest says actually there is some truth in it, that actually a combination of some hardcore science, a bit of psychology, and maybe just a touch of mystical magic could bring you more money. Sarah Akunsembe is uh, the author of The Money Is Coming, and she joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, so tell us, when you say it's a mix of woo-woo and science, how do we manifest some more money? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you just mentioned The Secret, because one of the reasons I really wanted to write the book that I've written is because I love The Secret as well, but I just didn't feel like it went deep enough into what you actually needed to do. Mm-hmm. Like that whole idea of just kind of, oh, you know, write yourself a million pound check and then <laughs> sit on your sofa and wait, never really kind of worked for me. <laughs> like, Still I'm waiting. Quite a real person. <laughs> and I was like, I kind of want to understand how this actually works. So I sort of went on my own journey with understanding our money mindset and the kind of belief that we can pick up good and bad and how they can affect you know just how we think about money and therefore what opportunities we respond to how we see money in the world um and i just wanted to write something that was kind of like the new millennials kind of no bs version of the secret basically so where do we start then is it about first of all identifying maybe some of the beliefs we have around money Yeah, absolutely. That's like the first place that we always say to start. I think we rarely actually sit down and think about what did we grow up around? What did our parents say about money? What are the things we've seen in 
the media and in society that have made us, you know, like shaped our money programming, really. And some of that's not always completely positive. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So, for example, when you're growing up, you might hear things like money doesn't grow on trees or uh, people with money can be really greedy. And yeah, that can often be the case. But then we've seen lots of examples where that's not the case as well. And I think it's just about as an adult really reflecting on what you want out of your financial future and how you create beliefs that are actually your own. And sometimes that means you need to strip away lots of layers of old stuff that isn't necessarily what you've wanted. Do you think some of us don't really understand our relationship with money? Because I have definitely said, I was going to say in the past, I think I probably said it like a week ago, I said, I don't know where it goes. Um, Yeah. You know, and obviously if I probably looked at my bank account, I could probably work it out. But I maybe haven't given enough time to it. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think... I think sometimes we're at conflict, actually, with the things that we really want in our future. If we were to sit down and be really vulnerable and really honest about what we do want in our future, which might be a certain type of lifestyle or a certain career or security for our family. And that often comes with money because that's how the world works. But then we sort of can sometimes say things that are not in alignment with that. Like, oh, I don't like money. Money causes problems. Uh, money more money more stress you know so sometimes we kind of say or act in a certain way that's not actually aligned with where we want to go and I think that's where the problems can arise. So when we've worked out kind of what our views are around money what what should we be doing then? I think then it's about trying to have a more positive outlook on money I think just that alone and trying to become the kind of person who is more positive and has a better outlook on it is more open about what they want. I think women are very rarely um, open about kind of how much they make, what they want to make, what they want money for, what good they want to do in the world with it. And I think it's about really getting clear and quite vocal about what we want as women, especially. Do you think women have a different attitude to money than the men do? I don't know if it's that we actually have a different attitude. I think it's just that obviously years and years of like how things are in society and mostly Mm. things being quite patriarchal, it's just that men are maybe a bit more experienced in talking about money and what they want and, and going for it. And they aren't maybe ashamed for being ambitious or being driven, whereas obviously with women like you start talking about how much money you want to make and where you want to be, it's kind of often met with a bit of a like, oh my God, that's a bit crazy. But, you know, I think it's really important for women to get more vocal about that. And actually, I was thinking about some of the negative terms we use when we talk about women who like money. We say money grabbing or a gold digger or shallow, which are not terms that we use about men, are they? No, I think it's really interesting you say that because there's a whole chapter in the book about this kind of Mm. being assertive around what you want and why when we see those traits in men, we often look up to them and we think they're good leaders. But when we see it in women, we go, God, she's such a diva. And I just think, you know, it's just I think the more women that do it, it will become more normal. And I think it's really important to get more money in the hands of women because I think there's a lot of decisions that are getting made for us at the moment. And as we know, the world runs on money. More money means more power, more respect, more more of a voice at the table, really. Yeah. And so that's kind of my mission, really. Do you think it's about us asking for more? Do we need to be better negotiators? 
I think that's part of it. I think firstly, it's about really getting clear with what we want and not feeling like we're going to be shamed or judged mm. for talking about it. And that comes with personally us working on it first and being a bit less judgmental and being a bit more open and then creating spaces like in our friend circles or with other women where we can talk about it and be excited about our ambitions and the successes that we want and I think that's kind of where we start and then that you know also more women starting their own businesses having money in their pocket means that we just ultimately get more of a say and then I think things will start to change. What was your own journey with money like? Have you always been good at manifesting it? Um, No, (laughs) not at all. I think I had a lot of years when I was younger, especially when I was in the creative industries. I used to be in the music industry and I was very kind of of that creativity and money making and commerciality like don't go hand in hand. And that was kind of my belief. And I had a lot of friends who were like, the very stereotypical like broke artists and didn't (laughs) want to make any money because they thought that meant we were sellouts um but I think over time I've just sort of slowly changed that attitude and realized that you know we're in a, a time now where you can literally make money doing anything that you want we're in the most amazing time where you know you can get on Instagram and clean your bathroom and you can suddenly become a best-selling <laughs> author or make you know loads of money so I think it's about you know realizing what opportunities are available and grabbing them with both hands. What um, what do you think we perhaps need to do in order to make money a more uh, I guess a more natural conversation. It's something we talk to our kids about, something that they learn about in schools. Is it, I guess, this kind of hesitance to talk about it? Is that endemic in our culture? Yeah, I think it is a little bit. I think it's quite a British thing. Mm. Like, from what I've observed in other countries, I mean, America's always like an easy one to look at in the sense of they definitely seem to be a bit more open to talking about their ambition and the things that they want to do and obviously like the American dream but I think in Britain like we're a bit like stiff upper lip don't talk about it but then we have this massive class system that still exists and I think it's all a bit hypocritical do you know what I mean I think it's all starting to change and I think people are being more open about what they make in their career what they make as a business person Um, and just being a bit more transparent with things. And I think it's not going to change overnight, but, you know, I think it's important for us to start doing that now so that, as you said, our kids can talk about it more openly, they can go for what they want and realise the opportunities that are out there, and maybe in the next generation, like, things will start to change a little bit. What is, if there's one piece of advice from the book that you really want people to know, what would it be? I think it's that, People often think, oh, I'll have a really good relationship with money once I've made money. So they think, you know, once I've made 100 grand, then I can um, go and do all the things that I want to do. Then I'll feel good about money because I won't have any debt. You know, I'll walk confidently and I'll be able to talk about it. But the big secret is that you have to get to that kind of space in your mind first and then the money comes. And I think that's, you know, that's why I called the book, The Money Is Coming. That was like my mantra when I had none. Um, and it's it's also what the kind of ethos of the book is. It's like if you work on your mindset first and you first become the kind of person who can make money and is available for opportunities, that's kind of the big secret. 
I think that's a great secret to share. Thank you so much, Sarah. Sarah's book, The Money Is Coming, uh, which I might repeat to myself as a daily mantra, is available now and it's great. It is, as she says, a mix of woo-woo and science. It's practical and helpful, but lots of inspiration in there too. So if you think you might need a little money booster, it's a good investment. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Screaming gates are 20 years later. Of course it does while consciousness faded. New generations believe in them fables. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL. If you hear that song, maybe you like me. The only thing you can think of was that amazing ad Channel 4 did back in 2012 for the Paralympics, Superhumans. Well, somebody who is trying to be a Paralympian but doesn't know if she can make it due to COVID is Mary Wilson. Hi, Mary. Good evening to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, You are, it sounds like actually you've had a completely incredible life anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Former psychiatric nurse in the military, almost killed by the Taliban, the only female captain in the inaugural Invictus Games, and then you took up parabadminton after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It doesn't sound like much will ever stop you. Um, hopefully not. I, I, my sort of um, thing about life is life is for living and um, you just sort of get on with it, really. So challenges uh, come and go and then you just get on with the next one, really. Can you tell us about your situation at the moment physically? What are you able to do, not able to do? And how did you become a Paralympian? Um, Well, I've got, uh, initially I was diagnosed in 2004 with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in the army at the time. And then I was medically discharged in 2012. then did the Invictus Games, etc. And um, I used to play badminton quite a while ago when I was younger. And uh, so in 2017, I went along to a para badminton club quite close to me. And um, from there, I was um, selected for, for the Scotland team about four months later and um, went on to my first uh, international to, to represent Scotland. And from there, basically, it's just, it's just carried on. I think I've played in 23 internationals so far. Wow. And if you are a para-athlete and you want to become a Paralympian, what are some of the sort of, I guess, process you have to go through in order to make it onto the team? Um, well, basically, um, I was quite lucky because my, my classification is SL4, which means that I have um, a less uh, disability uh, on in my body than somebody who's an SL3. And so there was no um, real SL4 women at the time that I started playing. So they just basically, Scotland thought they would give me a go. And um, I medalled in my first... Uh, 10 internationals and then worked my way up the world rankings to I think it was number four. And how has Covid impacted this? Oh it's it's been terrible. I mean first of all you know um, I know people have died and that's the main that's the main thing to say. Uh, Sport rightly took a a second seat behind all that Um, but um, 
you know, it's been seven months since I picked up a, a badminton racket. I was training really hard for the Paralympics to get um, ranking points. And um, it, it, it wasn't actual to feel down, but then a lot of days I'd be thinking, why am I putting myself through this? Uh, had to sort of come to terms with a big loss that when exercise is a massive yeah. part of my life and accept what's happening. Um, real challenge to stay motivated, both physically and psychologically. And of course, I'm 56 now, so I'm, I'm quite a bit older than a lot of the, the para-athletes from other countries. Uh, so I've got another year of putting my, my body through hell um, mm-hmm. and hard training and stress. Um, and also with, with having secondary progressive uh, multiple sclerosis now, it means that I'm gradually declining and very, very small deteriorations in my body. So in a year's time, um, I don't know what I'm going to be like. I hopefully I'm, I'm going to be, you know, fit enough and good enough, but there's always a chance I might um, either be in a different classification or I might even be in a wheelchair. It just depends. How does it feel to have been training for something and, and something so unique, really, as the Paralympics, so special as the Paralympics? How does it feel to have been training for that and potentially have to miss out on it? Oh, um, do you know, it's something that I I try not to think about. I initially did think about it a lot and had many sleepless nights over it. And then I came to terms with it and, um, you know, it was just part of life and what was happening and tried to, I guess, um, get into a, a sort of personal reflection stage where I would think of more positive things and not negative things um, and try and get through it that way. And also, uh, one of the things I did was, you know, take up sort of new um, skills, like I took up more long bowls, playing backgammon, mm-hmm. um, went wild swimming, which is a new big thing in my life, which um, which I'm just back from tonight. Um, so, so things that challenge me, but... Deep down, I um, I I don't want to miss out on it, and I know that I'm going to do my utmost to get there. But um, another year is enough long time. We talk a lot to sports women about the kind of physical side of it, but there's a, a really practical funding side here. You know, you yes. Paralympians, you are technically not professionals; you are amateurs, so. You've got to find funding for this. How have you done that? And what do you think the impact of COVID might be on that funding? Well, um, so 2017, I started writing to different companies. I wrote to over 200 companies with absolutely nothing coming back. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that people have become more acclimatised and used to seeing disability, um, mainly because of, you know, soldiers or military being injured mm. in Afghanistan. And so it's become more of a norm. Um, so they don't look on us the way they, they used to. And so we don't give um, as much funding. And um, basically, most of the time we're just left to get on with it. Uh, but in saying that, there's um, a certain charity called Path to Success who... They they support uh, female disabled athletes um, and they, they pick um, a certain number and every three years 
for three years we support them and give them funding and get them, you know, interviews on radio, et cetera, et cetera, to get, to get money. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I've got no funding whatsoever now for 2021. Yeah. Um, so I've tried to save up what I've had. But, you know, to tell you the truth, over the last three, three and a half years, I've probably spent a lot of my war pension and um, it's added up to about £55,000. Wow. And that's just on your training and... Yes. Um, training, uh, physiotherapy, yeah. um, travel, accommodation, entry fees, all that sort of stuff. It, it's it's crazy money. Wow. I don't think anyone thinks about that, that actually athletes are putting this money in themselves. <sighs> Do you think this is, it was really interesting. I love that you said there, you know, that you feel like actually getting funding has become harder because in a way we've sort of become used to seeing disabled athletes. And mm. it, it's, it's there's like a positive of that, right? Which is that yes. we've become used to seeing disabled athletes. That's so become a Absolutely. part of, you know, our part of our media landscape. But the impact of that is that actually we've almost become a bit immune to it and we're less likely to give. How do we get round that? Do you know that's a, that's a really good question? <laughs> I don't know if either of us have um, the answer. <laughs> because um, initially, you know, if you, if you'd see, for instance, um, somebody who had a, a you know a prosthetic leg, yeah. um, you would be quite shocked at that. And then as time progressed, you'd see somebody with two prosthetic legs or or two legs and an arm missing. Or and and now we've come. It's almost like pro inoculated to anything. Um, unless it's absolutely shocking. And so it's got the shock factor. And um, I don't know that we can, actually. I really, really think we might have come to almost the end of the road with that. Uh, and also, you know, para-athletes are elite athletes themselves, and they can take on, I believe, able-bodied athletes almost as well mm. um, as being disabled. So there may well come a day where disabled and um, sort of able-bodied will be in the same competition. That's fascinating. Do you think COVID-19 is going to have an impact actually on the fairness of the 2021 as they will be Paralympics? Yes, I do. Mm, I do. Um, Well, um, for instance, um, Japan and China, uh, Indonesia, they all started training months ago. Um, And even some of the European uh, countries started training. Whereas um, Britain, England, for instance, only started last month getting back on the badminton courts. And and Scotland hasn't even opened up yet. It's not even... um, no gyms or leisure facilities are going to reopen until mainly until the 16th of, the, of September. So we're miles behind. Mm. I mean, uh, I hadn't even thought about that, which is, of course, actually, if you can't access the facilities, you can't train. No, no. Um, there's There's been no training. I've bought uh, like a near badminton kit. But of course, with good old Scottish weather, um, <laughs> I've only managed to play, <laughs> to play once because it's either blowing a hoolie or it's pouring. Um so, so, yeah, I mean, I've done, so I've sort of set up my own um, strength and conditioning, mm. uh, that 
sort of programme that I do every day, which is like um, I put on oven gloves and I do press-ups off the kitchen workshop or I have a bag of diving weights, which I do right calf raises or I hold a, a heavy frying pan and do lunges. Um, basically, just to try and adapt to anything because yeah. I sort of missed the boat because I didn't realise that COVID was going to be so bad and yeah. everybody bought all the stuff out of all the gym shops and I couldn't get my hands on anything so I had to adapt really (laughs) (laughs) I love the oven mitts push-ups it's brilliant Um, Mary what is your hope for the 2021 Olympics what would you like to see happen um well, this will be the first time in 2021 that uh, mm. badminton is going to be included. So it'll be fantastic for that to, to happen anyway. Um, I obviously hope that I'm going to, to make the cut, but I'd say I'm pretty much on the boundary. And whether it happens or not, I, I you know I wish everybody the best. And um, I have a lot of friends who are from different countries who... Um, we're very close, but when we're on court, we're you know very very competitive. Um, but I, I I hope that you know I hope that COVID, which I don't think it will, but I hope that COVID disappears. I hope that the Paralympics are a real success. Um, I'm still not convinced that we're going to go ahead. I must say, yeah. I think this virus is going to be around for an awful long time, um, and just. Um, you know, if if I don't make it, then we've moved. We've got the Worlds next year, and we've got the Europeans next year as well, because everything's been been moved by a year. Um, so, so yeah. But I, I mean, I, I dare to dream. Let me say, I dare to dream to make the the team to to represent Great Britain um, in case. I don't make it, or in case I do make it, because either way I'll be in tears. So. <laughs> oh, Mary, I really hope you make it. I hope it goes ahead. I hope you Thank are you. part of it. Thank you so much. You're an absolute lesson in resilience, determination and living life to the full. Mary Wilson there on the Paralympics and what could happen in 2021. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 